All right. Well, so welcome back to our, our regular, I guess, Sunday morning discipleship class after going through membership uh, about the church, what we believe, and moving forward with that next phase in church life. Um, but we wanted to, to kind of take a step into, you know, Ken and I had been talking about kind of is where to go with this, and we both kind of settled on this idea of, you know, a hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, especially considering, you know, hermeneutics, how we approach Scripture is so important to how we come to our particular, um, our particular viewpoint of Scripture and how to interpret Scripture, especially, you know, with dispens you know, a dispensational viewpoint. It is, it's entirely based on a particular approach to reading and interpreting Scripture that assumes that we let Scripture speak for itself. You know, how we approach Scripture. Um, but we approach the Bible, we approach everything with certain presuppositions. You know, the pre, when we approach Scripture, the, ma the primary presupposition that we approach it with is that the Bible is inerrant. If we don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, the rest of it falls apart, and why even bother reading it or take the time to study and interpret it since it's not inerrant and anything that we don't like, we can just say, well, they were mistaken or that's a particular time and place and we can just discard it. And, and we take the approach, uh, the approach of just kind of avoiding the difficult stuff. And if we do that, we end up with a, a fluff Christianity that is, quite frankly, wrong. So the presupposition that we approach with, the, that we approach Scripture with, is that it is inerrant. Consequently, if it's also inerrant, we have to we have to assume that it is both inspired and authoritative, because it claims to be. Um, if the, if it's inerrant, then this is the word of God. If it's the word of God, it's authoritative, and it's inspired. If we believe these things about Scripture, then the Bible is the thing most worth studying. There's really nothing else that's even a close second. This is the inspired Word of God that's been handed down to us over the past 3,500 years and passed down even longer than that before it was written down. Um, who wants to look up 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, or if anybody has it memorized off the top of their head, um, who wants to look up Hebrews 4, 12? And who wants to look up Jude, verse 3? Ken, if you want to get 2 Timothy, Jessica, if you want, Jessica, you can get Jude 3. Lily, you want to get Hebrews 4, 12? Whenever you're ready. Wrong page. Oh, no, no. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is the Word of God. And it's worth, I mean, right there, it's, a, it's both the Word of God and it is worthwhile reading and using it's not just there for us to read like we would read. It's applicable. Who wants to, who has Jude 3? 
Jessica, could you use the mic? Yeah, just okay. Jude 3, dear friends, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation, I now feel compelled, that one, no, compelled instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that once for all entrusted to the saints. We're told to contend for the faith. How do we contend for the faith if we don't know what we're contending for? That's revealed in Scripture to us. Lily, you want to read Hebrews 4.12? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, the, the, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Marrow, yeah. And so, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this isn't just a book that we read, we put up on the shelf and read like we would read any other book. This is a book that holds truth that is active and applicable for us today. Why wouldn't we want to read and study this book correctly? Why else study the Bible? Yeah, there's, as I was reading through and preparing for this, I came across some very sobering realities. In 2021, there was a study of Bible readership that, that the results indicated that the following, the following rather troubling statistics, that 66% of Americans read the Bible once, once a month or less. And of that 66%, a majority of that was none at all. Only 11% report reading the Bible every day. Now, that wasn't just a cross-section of people who report to be Christians. That was just any, all Americans. So there were people who would not claim to be Christians included in that number. But what about Christians? When surely we would think, you know, Christians, Christians read the Bible, and they, they read the Bible, and they, they have a biblical worldview and understanding of, of the created order of man, of sinfulness, of salvation. We would think, you know, Christians read the Bible, we, you know, we're going to understand this. Well, that was, those were the numbers as the breakdown, and even over time, those numbers don't really, they're not really getting better. It's not good. <laughs> but among people who claim to be Christians, yeah, how can we contend for the faith if we're not in the Word? But when we talk about Christians, this is according to a 2022 Barna study that was released, and there are some issues every now and then with Barna, but it is pretty much all we've got as far as... Um, large-scale large study of, of the church and Christians, when, when Americans were questioned, 69% of Americans self-identify as, as Christians. 
Well, something's not matching up if 69% of Americans self-identify as Christians and 66% never read, you know, 66% read the Bible once a month or less. But of that 69% who self-identify as Christians, there's some pretty unchristian world, you know, unbiblical worldviews that they hold. 72% state that people are basically good. 64% would then go on to say, not just that all people are basically good, but all faiths are of equal value. There are many ways to God. 58% flat out deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. 52% claim that truth is relative, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And another rather sobering number that I did not put up there more than 60% deny the inerrancy of Scripture. These are among people who, who claim to be Christian. 60% deny the inerrancy, authority, and inspiration of Scripture. They view the Bible as just a book like any other book. On, certainly, they would, certainly they would acknowledge that the Bible has some type of historical value and has influenced, has influenced history. But they would deny that it's the word of God. And those are among people who, who self-identify as Christians, however they define Christianity to be. These are some pretty troubling statistics. If anything, in my mind, this states all the more the necessity of knowing how to approach and understand Scripture. But if we approach Scripture and we acknowledge and we understand that, yes, okay, this is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God, we're also confronted, though, that it isn't always easy to understand, especially when you get into certain types, of, certain types of writings that we're not particularly familiar with, you know, digging into some of the Old Testament prophetic writings. Those are not always the easiest to understand on their face. Reading through, you know, reading through some of the Old Testament narrative, where's the applicability for us today? It's not always front and center. But it's there. We're told all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for a whole host of things. But in order, to in order to accurately and appropriately apply Scripture, we have to have a, a consistent hermeneutic, a hermeneutic that lets the text speak for itself. But when, we are, when we're approaching, we have to remember that there are certain gaps in our knowledge. We have to mind the gaps. You know, part, of the, you know, part of the book that I'm following and uh, using as a guide through this, he talks about that when we approach Scripture, there are certain gaps in our knowledge. You know, the Bible was written at a particular time in a particular place to a particular people, 
and it describes historical events that are very far removed from our present experience that can dramatically impact how we understand Scripture. So these gaps are, are simply barriers that can, that can get in the way to us accurately understanding. They fall into generally three broad categories. There's the historical gaps, you know, time, place, you know, time, place, culture gaps. There's the literary gaps. There's, you know, falling into that, there's language, but there's also literary style. Not all scripture is written in the same style. Some is poetry, some is history, some is prophecy. Some are pastoral epistles, some are gospel. Each genre has its own particular rules for reading and for understanding this. And then there's the theological gaps. That scripture isn't just a book like any other. It is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And it doesn't try to defend that. It just assumes that it is the word of God because it says it is. It doesn't try to defend that. It simply is. So these can get in the way sometimes and make it difficult to understand what exactly is the author trying to communicate. Getting into some more specifics, when we talk about the time gap, the Bible was written between 1900 and 3400 years ago. It covers a large span of world history, but there's also been a very large span of world history that's occurred since the canon was closed. How do we understand the book of Lamentations? We're not there. But I would imagine that if we were actually there, understanding and experiencing the Babylonian captivity and the oppression of the Jews by the nations around, we would have a very different understanding of Lamentations than we do currently. It's going to hit a lot different. You know, when when we call you know, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, it's because of the book of Lamentations. What's he weeping over? It's one thing to know the oppression and the destruction that historically that was wreaked upon the Jewish nation, but it's another thing to, to actually understand it from being there. The time gap can get in the way of that. You know, we read the book of Jonah and we read that how Jonah was was very angry at God for God telling him, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Tell, tell them to turn from their ways. And we see Jonah get angry at God, and he tries to run in the opposite direction. Now, we know the Assyrians, you know, again, oppressed, the, oppressed the, the Israelites. We know that they took them into captivity. But to have lived there and to have experienced, and we can read in, we can read in other you know, histories the atrocities that the Assyrians committed, you know, hanging, hanging their captives over their walls, putting their dead bodies on display, the torture, everything that they did. We can read that. But how do we fully understand the anger that Jonah's experiencing not having lived there? So time, can that that time distance 
can keep us from fully appreciating and understanding exactly what Scripture is trying to communicate. But there's also geography. That the vast majority of the events in the Bible occurred about you know, 10,000 miles away from us in an area about the size of New Jersey. You know, we, you know in the New Testament, the Sea of Galilee plays incredible prominence in the, in the Gospels. And yet the Sea of Galilee is a body of water about six, mile, six by ten miles. That you can, anywhere you stand on the Sea of Galilee, you can see the other side. You know, as, as I've been studying and preparing through next week's sermon where it talks about Jesus walking on the water, and even what we saw back in Mark 4 with the storm on the sea and Jesus was sleeping in the boat and the disciples getting very concerned, to understand the geography can explain why, why do those storms happen? Did you know that between the Sea of Galilee and the cliffs along the edges of the Sea of Galilee, there's about a 3,000-foot difference? The highest mountains on the edge of the Sea of Galilee is about 2,500 feet high, and the Sea of Galilee sits 600 feet below sea level. In the span of just a couple of miles, there's almost a mile drop in elevation. Storms come up out of nowhere when it talks about Jesus being able to see the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, well, how can he do that? We think, okay, this is a sea, this is big, except it's not big. Understanding the geography of the area that we're reading about can help bridge that gap. You know, when it talks about Jesus walking, you know, they're, they're walking everywhere in Israel. At its widest point, Israel's about 40 miles wide. We could... We could drive across Israel from one side to the other in less than, in less than half an hour. Speed limit. <laughs> we could drive from one side to the... We could drive lengthwise from one side to the other in about, an, in about two hours. And yet, the overwhelming majority of biblical history occurs in the land that size. There's also culture. The cultures of the Bible are drastically different than our own. The cultures of the ancient Near East are vastly different than our own. When the Bible is talking about the nations around and the, the cultures and the practices of the nations around Israel, and even talking about the practices in Israel, some of which we think you know, marriage customs are very different than our own. Different social classes. Um, in the New Testament, five times in the New Testament, it says to greet each other with a holy kiss. We walk around greeting each other with a holy kiss. Yeah. When you leave here today, walk up to a person on the street and greet them with a holy kiss. What's, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> you're probably going to get hit or you're probably going to get arrested. Um, what does this mean? Well, there is a certain cultural context behind what that means. So, when we're reading Scripture, this is more about, you know, recognizing the gaps is more about recognizing knowing what we don't know. What are some things 
that we need to look into to better understand this text. Because when we, when we dig into and we read and we study the text, not just reading the words on the page, but really digging into what do these words mean, what do these phrases mean, what do these practices mean that we're reading about, we get the fuller sense. And in fact, in doing so, maybe we come to a different understanding of what a text of Scripture means than what we initially thought that it meant. But there's not just the, the historical gaps. There's literary gaps. That the Bible was written in languages and genres that are very different than those to which we're accustomed. The Bible was written in, in Koine Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Is there anybody that knows those three languages and just like can talk conversationally in those three languages? No, the, the original languages are vastly different. There's nuances of meaning, there's idiom, there are words and phrases that Bible translators have, have translated faithfully to the best of their ability, and yet there are certain words and phrases that don't translate well. That we lose something in the meaning, or... There are certain words that, depending how they're used, the word means a different thing. One example, the Hebrew word for day, yom, typically refer, in its typical normal usage, refers to a 24-hour sundown to sundown day. That is its typical and normal usage. And yet, there are many times throughout the Old Testament where it doesn't mean that. How do, we, how do we know? Well, we have context that can communicate it to us. You know, when, we, when it talks about in the day of Abraham, was it the 24-hour day that Abraham was alive? No, it's, it's talking about during Abraham's lifetime. So here we have an example of that word that refers more to a lifespan or some indeterminate period of time. Another place where it's used, especially in the prophetic literature, the day of the Lord. Well, day there means yom. Are, are we talking about only a 24-hour day in which the Lord arrives? No, we're talking about something much bigger. But that doesn't always translate well. Because the original languages have nuance of meaning. But it's not just language that can, that can be a barrier. It's also, the Bible is a, written in a lot of different types. You know, you, you look in the law. Well, you know, so we have the law. We have the narrative history. Um, we have the poetry of the Psalms. We have the prophecies of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. We have the Gospels. We have church history and Acts. We have apocalyptic literature and Revelation and some of the Old Testament prophets. We have the Pauline, we have the general epistles, we have the personal epistles. Each one written in a different way, each one written for a different purpose. Understanding that purpose helps us bridge the different genres. But there's also 
there's the theological gaps. And sometimes these, the theological gaps can sometimes be some of the, some of the more difficult gaps in order for us to bridge. You know, the, the supernatural gap is, the Bible prevents, presents supernatural realities and miraculous events that we don't typically experience. You know, people being healed, people ra- being raised from the dead, fire being called down from heaven, massive bodies of water being parted and there's dry ground. The Bible presents these as realities and it makes absolutely no attempt to explain it as natural phenomenon. The Bible accepts and it presupposes the supernatural and it does not attempt to defend itself against people who would try to explain it as otherwise. So we have to read the Bible with the expectation that as we read the Bible, we're going to read supernatural events and happenings that the Bible makes absolutely no attempt to explain or justify. It simply is describing it as a reality of this world. But it's not just, oh, the random supernatural happens. There's also the theological gap that the Bible isn't doesn't just describe supernatural events, but it is God's self-revelation. That it's, that it's communicating truth from God to his creation and that it is God doing the supernatural. And again, it's not attempting in any way to explain the, the supernatural. It's not trying to justify it. It's not trying to tell it in any type of way that we would understand it within the confines of the created order. It just is. This is God acting in his creation in how he chooses. But there's also the appropriation gap. How do we apply this? How do we how does the message of the Bible get from interpretation to practical application? How do we go from the then and there to the here and now? This isn't always an easy thing to do. You know, we can think of, okay, reading the Gospels and things like that. Oh yeah, that, that, seems, that seems very easy to do. Try to bridge this gap reading the book of Judges. We spent, we spent six months not all that long ago going through Judges. And one of the things that we talked about in going through that, this is a, that's a book of the Bible that many preachers avoid even talking about. Because how do, how do you find Jesus in Judges? Because it starts out bad and it just gets worse. How do we read the book of Judges and find anything applicable How do we understand this in some way that we can apply then and there to here and now? Sometimes this gap seems like an insurmountable gap. But when we approach this with a consistent hermeneutic, a hermeneutic that lets the scripture speak for itself rather than us reading in some type of meaning that we would rather that it had, these gaps become much smaller, almost non-existent. 
And if we're going to contend for the faith, if we're going to recognize that, the script, that Scripture is living and active and that it, is, that it is useful, then it is absolutely worth bridging these gaps. We overcome these gaps with hermeneutics. Now, the word, the word hermeneutics sometimes can seem like a very imposing, well, that, that's just a, theo, a, a really big theological word. Some people get very turned off by the word hermeneutics and they'll just say, well, I don't need hermeneutics, just give me the Bible. I've heard that before. Well, don't, don't give me those fancy words, I just have the Bible. Okay, how do you understand what the Bible is saying? Everyone, whether they realize it or not, everyone approaches the Bible with some type of hermeneutic, with some type of presupposition about how to understand and read, interpret, and apply what's in Scripture. And truthfully, not all hermeneutics are created equal. In fact, some are just downright terrible. Um... So, we really want, and by necessity, we really need to approach this in a way that draws the meaning out of the text. What is the text communicating? What is the author, what are the authors of Scripture communicating? Not just what is the human author who wrote it communicating, but what is God communicating through that human author. Hermeneutics, it's really a fancy word for just talking about, it's a method and process of reading and understanding scripture. Now, we hold to a grammatical historical hermeneutic. What, what does that mean? Well, we look at, it's a consistent principled method it's the same method that we apply to the Old Testament as we do the New Testament. We don't just change how we read Scripture because we're moving between the Testaments. We seek to understand Scripture as it was intended by the authors, both human and divine. What do the words on the page mean in context, in history? What was the authorial intent in writing this? Because a lot of times, once we understand and get at what the authorial intent is, that right there can tell us a huge part of what does this mean? Why am I writing this? Why did the author write this? What was the occasion to write this? And that often is the thread that goes through the entire book. Why did the author write this? Kind of flown through a lot. Does anyone have any questions, comments, concerns, anything? That, yeah, okay. So, how, what are the characteristics of a grammatical historical hermeneutic? Well, there really are seven principles that we follow most of which are absolutely related to one another. These, these don't really stand alone. There's literal, contextual, one meaning, exegetical, linguistic, progressive, and harmony principles. 
What, what do these mean? So when we talk about the literal principle, we're talking about that the words of the Bible should be taken at face value without reading into what's not there. You know, I used the example of the Hebrew word for day. That the words, face, the words normal usage, it, the face value of the word is a 24-hour day. Well, some people, when they, some Bible interpreters, when they have strayed from this principle of understanding that the word yom normally, under, normally is understood to mean a 24-hour day, and they say, well, it just, it just means some long gap of time, some, some indeterminate period of time in history. Well, then we read that on to Genesis 1 in the creation account, and we, people have come to some pretty wrong-headed ideas, I think, of the creation account, that they, would, they stray away from that, well, you know, that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days, to God created the heavens and the earth over some long indeterminate period of time unknown to us. And then it all goes off the rails from there. Words should be understood at their face value. Now, that's not to say that the Bible doesn't use symbolic language. The Bible often uses symbolic language. Um, in the Psalms. The Psalms are full of symbolic language. And yet, symbolic language is often used to communicate a literal intention. When, when it's described, you know, when God is described as a rock, is it literally calling God a rock? No. It's describing God as a firm foundation, rock-like in character. And yet, some of the draw, sometimes we can take that metaphor too far and, you know, God is dense, heavy, and abrasive, like a rock. Well, is that what, is that what the Psalms are communicating when they describe God as a rock? No. The literal principle assumes the preeminence of authorial intent. What did the author intend when he wrote the words on paper? We also talk about context, that the words of the Bible should be understood within the confines of its historical, literary, and theological context. Words have meaning in context. The context of a sentence, the context of a paragraph, the context of a book as a whole, and the context of scripture as a whole. You know, there's a, the historical cultural context that the events describe the author, the audience, historical time frame, and the cultural peculiarities going on at the time that this was written. But there's a literary context that not all the books of the Bible were written in the same genre. Read the, you know, if you read the book of Daniel versus reading the book of Judges, we can see they're very different, even within the book of Daniel itself. The first half of the book of Daniel is narrative history, and yet the second half of the book of Daniel is prophecy. We can't understand, we can't understand what's being written without understanding that 
there's different genres. That prophetic literature, historical literature, the gospels, um, the law, have to be understood that sometimes words have a particular usage within a particular genre. And there's the theological context. That scripture should be understood within the context of its covenantal relationship between God and his people, but also within the context of scripture as a whole. That what's written in the book of Judges or what's written in the book of Isaiah, what's written in the, book, in the Psalms, should also be understood in the context of the Bible as a whole that also includes the Gospels and the Epistles and Revelation. That there is a consistency that, that, tra- that goes through all of Scripture. Scripture does not contradict itself. The one meaning. That Scripture typically has one correct interpretation of a text. There may be many applications of the text, but there's typically one interpretation. Now we bring our presupposition, or yeah, this, this has the basis in authorial intent. Authorial intent will clarify what is that one meaning. Now sometimes, this can be difficult to understand, especially when we look at how the apostles exegeted the Old Testament prophecies that sometimes seem very distant from what the original prophecy was. That there can be a fuller sense of the prophecy. And again, sometimes we can push a metaphor too far. I gave the metaphor, you know, God is a rock. Well, yes, that can mean, you know, that means God is, God is a firm foundation. And yet we can push the metaphor too far and assume, well, God has all the, all the qualities of a rock. He's dense, heavy, and abrasive. But that would go beyond what the one meaning of the text is. The exegetical principle means that, that the meaning of the text must be drawn from the text rather than read into the text. We can't make Scripture mean whatever we want it to mean. Scripture has a meaning independent of whatever we want it to mean. Sometimes that's really darn inconvenient, but Scripture has a meaning regardless of what we want it to mean. We must discover the meaning in the text rather than posing the meaning onto the text. The linguistic principle is what we talked about earlier, that the original languages always take precedence over any given translations. Because there are words, there are phrases, there are idioms that don't translate well. That while translators have done their best, some things there just really isn't an equivalent in another language. The progressive principle is that later revelation may clarify, complete, or supersede earlier revelation. We see this in the Old Testament, where God tells Noah that all animals are for them to eat, and yet then we see in the Mosaic Covenant, not all animals are for eating. 
Some are considered unclean. They can't eat it. And then from the Mosaic law to Jesus in the New Testament, declaring all things clean to eat. Does this is that scripture contradicting itself? Critics of scripture would certainly say that that's scripture contradicting itself. But there's not a contradiction there. When we understand that later revelation can clarify or supersede or complete. And the harmony principle. This one may be a ta sometimes taken for granted, but it's an important thing. It's important in grounding our meaning of what we, the meaning of scripture, and that scripture doesn't contradict itself. There's, there's not a passage of, of scripture that will have a meaning that contradicts the Bible as a whole. So, these are, these are our, our hermeneutical principles that we approach, and we approach it through the inductive method. We read the text, we draw the meaning out of the text. This process benefits from order. This is a this isn't just sit down and we run off wherever. It provides an order. And that order is we observe what the text is saying. We interpret scripture. We understand using the, using the seven principles, understanding the gaps. We understand the meaning of the text. And then we apply it. How is the text best applied based on its one meaning? It's also a flexible method. This method can be adapted to the, to the very new Christian or the very advanced Bible scholar. It's an expansible method. It's also practical. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us on track. And it, encourage, it encourages the development of our own Bible study skills. These are skills that can build on top of each other. This lays the foundation for, as we move forward, in, in getting into the nitty-gritty of inductive Bible study and hermeneutics, we will consistently be coming back to these principles. We will consistently be coming back to the gaps and focusing on the different, different aspects of observation, uh, interpretation, and application. So... We've gone a few minutes over time, but we got through everything today. I, I didn't know if we would, but let's pray as we close out. Father, we thank you for this time that as we, as we dig more into your word, and not just digging more into your word, but learning how to dig deeper into your word, this, this wealth of your revelation to your people, that it, that it is useful, that it is your word, that it allows us to know what we are contending for in a world that stands to oppose you. I pray that you would be with us now as we go into a time of worshiping you and who you are, that, that we would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.